0: I can only remember one ticket that my dad got while we were growing up. So there's a stop sign at the intersection between Anderson Drive and Florence Avenue where my parents live. So you come off of Highway 93, you turn left onto Anderson Drive, and then you go down a little hill, and you kind of come back uphill a little bit, and there's a stop sign sitting there before you turn right onto Anderson Drive. And that's how you get to my parents' house. If anyone in Ohio is listening in that area, go go say hi. I'm sure they'd be happy to see you. But there was never anyone at this intersection. Maybe like five or ten percent of the time there'd be someone else there. So it was common practice at the time, and probably still is, to do the classic rolling stop. Right? You kind of roll up to the stop sign. It's easy to see in advance all for. All four lanes, is anyone there? And you just, no one's there, so you just kind of roll through, don't have anything to worry about. I think it was probably on the way home from church, and because all of us were in the car, my dad did that rolling stop at the bottom of Anderson Drive, turning right onto Florence Avenue. Unfortunately, this time there was a cop sitting there who saw my dad do that rolling stop and pulled him over and gave him a ticket. I kind of feel like that's a little bit low. I mean, you could have given a warning, but, you know, small-town cop, you got to, you know, you, you do, you got to give out a ticket once in a while. So things are different there now, by the way. They give out a lot of tickets because it's in Appalachia. Lots of, lots of drug crime. But uh, and that's a different point. So, so my dad got that ticket One time, this was years ago when I was back in college, I was staying up at my family's house on Green Mountain where we now live. I was doing music for a kids camp uh, that was up there, a day camp, And, uh, and I was staying there because it was shorter than driving from here up there. Well, I rolled through a stop sign up there because there's never anyone at this stop sign. And I had one of my younger cousins in the car going with me to the camp. And they asked, would you have stopped there if a cop was sitting right there at the intersection? To which I replied, obviously. I mean, obviously I'm going to stop if there's a cop sitting right there. And now that we live up there, unless there is Cross traffic, I, I, I have to honestly say, I never stop at that stop sign. I just don't stop at the stop sign. She doesn't know I'm going to pick on her a little bit, but right now Hannah's learning how to drive. <laughs> and uh, she's got her learner's permit. We're slowly allowing her to drive further from the house and easing her into more challenging, you know, driving situations one of those scenarios was, was changing seats and having her merge from behind a stop sign into traffic onto a different road. There was no traffic because we hardly ever have traffic up there. Now, she didn't come to a full stop at that stop sign. So like her father and her grandfather, she just rolled right on through the stop sign which reminds me of something that the Bible says about the sins of the father being passed on to the third and fourth generations. But of course, I entered into a good father, a good dad lecture about you have to stop at the stop signs. If you don't stop at the stop sign when you're taking your test, you'll fail your test. Don't you want to get your, get your license? If there had been a cop sitting right there, you'd have gotten a ticket. And you don't even have your license yet. She replies, but you don't always stop at the stop signs. <laughs> had a flashback to that time my, my cousin challenged me about the same thing. Would you have stopped at that stop sign? I, 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 I know, I know, I say, but, but I've been driving a lot longer than you. I can make decisions quicker than you're able to yet. You have to stop at all stop signs. I know it's hypocritical. It's a classic do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do moment of parenting. Now, there is one stop sign that she's allowed to run. There, um, at the top of the hill, at the top of Lynch Avenue, the road that we live on. And that's because there never used to be a stop sign there. And last summer, some punk country kids went around pulling out all the road signs. And when the county replaced it, they replaced it not just with the road sign with the name on it, but they put a stop sign there. For some reason, never been a stop sign there for however long the road has been there, and they put a stop sign on, so we all ignore that stop sign. She's allowed to ignore that stop sign. But other than that, she has to stop at all stop signs. Now, there are probably some dads who agree with me, some men who agree with me, because I've driven well over a million miles in my life. So, So my reflexes are pretty good, and at this point unless she takes on a career as a as a driver my reflexes are faster than Hannah's reflexes so so i can say well i'm able to i'm able to make those decisions better than you because i've been driving for longer but others listening like my daughter would say well that's that's a pretty big double standard and she'd be right it is a double standard And I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only one that has double standards. We often have standards for others that we don't have for ourselves. Maybe you do better than this than I do, but it's not uncommon for me to find myself holding someone else to a standard that I don't hold myself to. Why do we do that? Why do we hold others to standards that we don't hold ourselves to? Why are we so quick to criticize, judge, and condemn others when they exhibit some kind of hypocrisy but then we fall into the same trap and express frustration over others who don't show us grace that we were also unwilling to show those in that situation we know our intentions our intentions my intentions are that we aren't lawbreakers i'm i'm not a lawbreaker we try to keep the law But I try to keep the law until something else comes into the equation, right? I want to obey the rules of the road unless I'm running late for dropping Hannah off at school. I want to obey the speed limit, expected a little bit of laughter there. I want to obey the speed limit unless I left the office too late on that day, so now I have to rush to get home close to the time that I said I'd be home. Or we intend to be generous, we see someone else needs our help, but then we have to replace the brakes on our car. We intend to pay our taxes, but we see the way the government handles our money and the fact that we are $30 trillion in debt, so we try to find a way around it. That might have been too far. Now, we might call these things higher callings. I would do this except, and this higher calling, this exception we make, you know, we, we might say, well, there's a, a higher reason why I'm not doing this thing. Hannah needs to get to school. That's important. I need to get home to my family on time. That's important too. And it's pretty clear how important breaks are for someone who speeds and doesn't stop at stop signs, so I need to get those replaced. But the truth is, I'm making... An exception to the rule for myself. And the truth also is, I wouldn't allow that same ex- exception to extend to someone else, like my daughter when she's learning how to drive. That's a good question. Why is that? So, Matthew chapter 3, or Ma- Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, we have what we call the Beatitudes. Now, classically, we would look at this list and we'd say that this is kind of Jesus' hallmark for those who are going to be his followers. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you you need to try to be or you need to to live within these beatitudes, these blessings, so to speak. But we don't often look and see, well, did Jesus live out these things? Was was Jesus uh, living by the beatitudes himself? Was Jesus... For instance, poor in spirit. I would probably we'd struggle with that a little bit because we might have a hard time understanding what poor in spirit means. The traditional teaching of being poor in spirit would, would mean that we have absolutely nothing of worth to offer to God. That's kind of a traditional teaching from what it means to be poor in spirit. We don't have anything to bring to God, but, but that's not the only understanding of what it means to be poor in spirit. Craig Keener of the InterVarsity Press Bible Background Commentary says, Many Jewish people believed that the kingdom would be ushered in only by a great war and force of arms. Jesus promises, promises the kingdom for the poor in spirit, the humble, the meek, the peacemakers. Poverty and piety were often associated in Judaism. So, being poor and righteous were often associated. The term poor could encompass either physical poverty or the faithful dependence on God that it often produced. So, according to Keener, poor in spirit could simply just mean a faithful dependence on God. We're not dependent on our own spirit. On our own understanding, on our own drive, but instead we are dependent on God. We're poor in our spirit because we are rich in trusting in God's spirit. So, if that is in fact what it means, then we can see that Jesus was definitely poor in spirit. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus gave this answer when they're challenging him about the Sabbath. He says, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his Father doing. So Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. He didn't do things of his own spirit or his own drive. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus, very well, could be poor in spirit. We know that Jesus mourned. Jesus mourned with with Mary and Martha when Lazarus died, John chapter 11. You can go see that Jesus wept. Jesus was meek, John chapter 13. He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. So Jesus humbled himself and became a servant to his disciples. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness, Luke chapter 5. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He was often getting away to spend time with the Father. Jesus was merciful to the widow and others by raising her son from the dead. To be pure in heart means that you recognize that God alone is our help and reward. So if, that's, if being pure in heart means that God alone is our help and our reward, Jesus was definitely pure in heart. Jesus was clearly persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus was definitely insulted and had many things falsely said about him. But was Jesus a peacemaker? Was Jesus a peacemaker? Do we see that Jesus was a peacemaker? Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Was Jesus a peacemaker? Do we see Jesus in his ministry trying to resolve conflicts? Do we ever see Jesus sitting down with Roman and Jewish officials, drawing them together to try to negotiate peace between the two groups? Did we see Jesus settling disputes between neighbors? Was Jesus a peacemaker? Even Jesus' teaching about peacemaking and peacekeeping doesn't seem to be very small. It's not a big theme of his teaching on earth. He deals with it some in Matthew chapter 18, but you could hardly say that peacekeeping or peacemaking was a big theme of Jesus' teaching. So what then was the biggest theme of his teaching? Anyone have a guess? What was the biggest theme of Jesus' teaching? Not peacekeeping, good guess. What was the biggest, what did Jesus teach on the most? Money. money. Some people think that. He mentions money quite a lot, but it's not a big part of his teaching. Love. love? definitely taught on love. Salvation, that's close. Do as I do. Being humble. Jesus' biggest teaching was the kingdom of God. That's what he talked about more than anything else. Now, there were a lot of things that were just mentioned that were a part of that teaching on the kingdom of God, but Jesus was teaching on what the kingdom of God looked like. What is it like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? A citizen of the, ki- of the kingdom of God is, is earmarked by love, by mercy, by humility, by kindness, compassion, all of those things. But it was all encapsulated in the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and trying to usher in the kingdom of God, the life of the kingdom, into the here and now. But if Jesus hardly taught about peace, how can we say that Jesus was purple? And so we might need to define purple a little bit. By purple, I don't mean compromise. That's often what comes to mind when you say purple. If you're talking about the red group and the blue group, then you might say, well, we just need to be more purple. We just need to, you know, the red group needs to give up some of their red beliefs, and the blue group needs to give up some of their blue, group, blue beliefs. And we'll come together, we'll compromise on everything, and no one will like anything anymore. It's kind of like, you know, blended worship services back in the day. Anyone remember those? We had blended worship services when music was going from traditional to contemporary, and some churches didn't want to have a contemporary service, and they did or and a, and a separate traditional service, so they'd have blended worship, which basically meant that no one was happy, no one liked it. That's not what I mean by purple. I don't mean compromising everything, compromising your beliefs or whatever it is that you hold to. So then how are we defining purple? How would I define purple? I would define purple, start to define purple in this way, by bringing people together under a higher calling. Bringing people together under a higher calling. So the kingdom of God, Jesus teaching on the kingdom of God, would be that higher calling. The higher calling would be kingdom of God thinking. So bringing people together under the higher calling of the kingdom of God. Now I know in, in, in our lives today, in the world today, politics has become really important. There are a lot of issues that are really important to us. But politics, as important as they are, and as important decisions that are being made every day and, and how important it is, all the things that are going on, is important. it's an important thing, but it is not The higher calling, at least not the higher calling for Christianity. Our higher calling is not in politics. In fact, because of our focus on national politics, a lot of local politics have been neglected. And maybe what we need to do is to divest ourselves a little bit from the national thinking and be a little more invested in local thinking and making a difference where we can actually make a difference. But as important as politics are, they're not the most important thing in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. It's become for too many, especially in the church, it's become too important, and we're going to get to that later in the series. We've made it the most important thing. We've made it too important. But it's not the most important thing. The kingdom of God is the most important thing. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, the most important thing is living in the kingdom of God in such a way that we are ushering in heaven on earth. As one commentator said, it said that, that, that may people experience the kingdom of God, experience the eternal nature of God, you know, that heaven on earth feeling just by being in our presence? Are people experiencing the heaven on earth feeling? Your will, being done, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are they experiencing that by being around us? So what did Jesus say was the most important thing? Well, you probably know the answer. He said in Matthew chapter 22, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. Jesus was always getting tested. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So that's the... Most important thing to Jesus. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's the most important thing to Jesus. Jesus had a way of silencing the crowd when he gave answers. Because what happened after this was they didn't ask him any more questions. They, they stopped asking him Questions. And he would go and someone would ask him a question to challenge him and then people would, he would he'd give an answer that totally blew their minds for which they had no response and so they'd stop asking questions. And the reason, the reason I believe that Jesus was able to silence the crowds with his responses was because he was answering from a higher plane. He was answering from the kingdom of God level, not the, the earthly level. Could it be that he wasn't arguing for Judaism versus Romanism, if that's the word, or vice versa, but he's arguing everything from an entirely different plane? The greatest commandments weren't the commands related to the Sabbath or honoring your parents, which is what the Pharisees spent most of their time trying to enforce, were the commands related to the Sabbath they come and they test Jesus with the question, and his response is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the important thing. So, was Jesus a peacemaker? Yes, but not the way we think of it. Like, our mind automatically goes to resolving conflicts. Our mind automatically goes to, if you're a peacemaker, you're going to get two people together who are fighting. You're going to sit them down, and you're going to get to, get to some kind of solution where there's peace restored in the relationship. Or when we think of peacemakers you know, nationally or internationally, that, that we send a peacemaker over to some other country and try to bring some kind of peace you know, before war breaks out between Russia and Ukraine or something like that, someone might send in a peacekeeper to try to keep the peace. Jesus wasn't a peacemaker or a peacekeeper in that way. He, he didn't disturb the peace, but he was concerned about a different kind of peace. He wasn't as concerned about the peace between the Romans and the Jews because he knew no such peace would last. If he were able to negotiate some kind of peace between the two groups, it would only last as long as the leaders between whom the peace was established were alive, and then it would go back to fighting. Jesus was committed and embraced a higher peace. What peace was that, though? Romans chapter 5. Great passage. If you, if you haven't read it, it would be something I'd definitely mark and read and think about Go read all of Romans chapter 5, but especially these first 11 verses. I'm going to start in verse 6. Paul is talking. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were God's enemies, so at the moment that Jesus died for us on the cross, we were still enemies of God. We were still in war with God. We were living in glad rebellion. And for us, it looks like something that happened in the past. But in our lives, we were living in rebellion against God. And while we were doing that, while we were fighting against God's higher calling and higher path and higher plan for our lives, Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't wait to die for us until we came along with his teaching and started to follow his ways. He died for us while we were still enemies. For us, that was thousands of years in advance. Jesus came to make peace for all humanity, and he came to do it with his life. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was his purpose. This is why he came. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did come to make peace. Jesus did come to to end a war, but he came to end the war between mankind, between all of mankind throughout all of human history, the war that's been going on between us and God as we rebelled against God all the way back in the garden. This is a thousands-year-old war. It's not a war of this century. This is a war that's been going on as long as we have been in existence. Jesus came to make peace. That is the mission that he was sent on, but it's a different kind of peace than we expect. It's a higher peace. That was his mission. Jesus also knew who he was. He was absolutely informed about his identity. Three times God the Father spoke audibly during Jesus' ministry. Can anyone guess what the three times were? When did God speak audibly during Jesus' ministry? His baptism, Mark, Mark 1 and Matthew chapter 3. <laughs> the loud one, the Mount of Transfiguration, yes. So Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke 9... Both of those were almost the same message. At Jesus' baptism, God said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, God said, This is my son. Listen to him. There's one more. Can anyone think of the third? It's not as obvious. It's a little harder. On Palm Sunday, yeah. In John chapter twelve, is that where you are? Yeah. It's with, There's this exchange going on with Philip, and uh, is it Andrew? Um, yes. Philip and Andrew. And Jesus is struggling with what's lying before him. And while Jesus is struggling, this voice from heaven comes and says, well, Jesus prayed, and during that struggle, he says, Father, glorify your name. God says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. And everyone who was around heard this and were terrified. And Jesus says, this voice was spoken for your benefit, not mine. But three times, God the Father spoke audibly into creation and said, this is my son, this is my son, or he responded to his prayer. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was God's son. There was no question in Jesus' mind about his identity. He knew he was the son of God. He knew that he had been sent here for a purpose, and his purpose ultimately was to bring glory to God's name. He knew who he was and why he was here. He was a representative of God's kingdom, and he was an advocate for the truth of God, the truth that God had used when he established and built the world in the beginning. There are the verses that we've talked about many times in John chapter 1, the first 14 or so verses where it talks about Jesus coming from the Father. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. And the Word was, was grace and truth, Truth, full of grace and truth. Later in John, Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. So the truth for Jesus wasn't just an idea that He agreed with in His mind, it was who he was. Jesus' life was true, and I think at least in part what that meant was Jesus inside and out was true. His internal spirit, the drive of his internal will matched up with his actions. He didn't have an external religion that where he did the right things on the outside, but on the inside he was rebelling and he didn't have an internal desire to obey God, and on the outside he kept doing things that were contrary to God's way of life. But internally and externally, he was true. He was truth. He was whole. But then you might say, well, if, if Jesus was a representative of God's truth, then, then did Jesus ever confront the mistruths, for, in, for instance, of, of the Roman Empire. Did the, did the Roman Empire ever receive, you know, a tongue lashing from Jesus? Did he ever take a stand against it? They were immoral, immoral in every imaginable way. Certainly, at some point in Jesus' ministry, he confronted and condemned Rome. But when Jesus was given opportunities to stand against Rome, he didn't. He didn't oppose paying taxes to Caesar. He would get falsely accused of saying that he didn't think people should pay taxes to Caesar. But he actually affirmed paying taxes to Caesar. Jesus didn't try to stir up people against Rome. Even though in Luke chapter 23, verse 5, he gets Condemned for stirring up people against Rome. He never did that. In fact, Pilate was trying to let Jesus off the hook in John chapter, uh, what was it John 21? Pilate's having this back and forth with Jesus and he's trying to let Jesus off the hook, but Jesus is committed to a higher calling. See, Rome was disgusting. Rome was abhorrent in their practices. They had thousands of God. They had a despicable sexuality. They accepted slavery. They mistreated people based on race and their socioeconomic status. They threw babies into the landfill to let them die, and worse. There were plenty of things Jesus could have addressed with Rome, but he didn't. Why? Why? Because that's not why he was here. He wasn't here to judge Rome. He wasn't here to condemn Rome. He knew that there was an ultimate judge that would ultimately end up judging Rome. And we'll get to that in several weeks down the road. Jesus could have condemned condemned them, but he didn't. Because he was here to satisfy God's judgment against them for their rebellion. He wasn't here to condemn them. He was there to end their war with God and to give them the answer. He was here first for the Jews and then all of mankind and our rebellion against God because we chose our own truth or we chose the devil's truth instead of the truth God built the world on. That's why Jesus was here. In the end, Jesus didn't satisfy the demands of either Rome or Israel, and that's what got him crucified. John chapter 18, verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? talking about the religious leaders, the teachers of the law and Pharisees. So they didn't come into the governor's headquarters because they didn't want to be made unclean. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. It's interesting that they wouldn't go in to the governor's headquarters because they wanted to participate in the Passover. They were preserving themselves for the rituals and religion that they knew, not even aware that the Passover, the one to whom the Passover pointed to, was the one that they were trying to kill. They were preserving themselves for the religion they knew when they should have been receiving God's Son. John 18.33, a couple verses later, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? This is Jesus' opportunity, right? This is Jesus' chance to take the power as the king of the Jews. It's who he was. He was the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He could have claimed authority as the king of the Jews, but what does he do? He questions Pilate. He says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Instead of taking advantage of the opportunity to free himself, Jesus was more interested in Pilate's beliefs about what was true. What do you believe, Pilate? Later, after Jesus had spoken about this not of this world kingdom, Pilate would say, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say that I'm a king. Now if you keep reading on there's there's a key a key verse that's coming but I feel like there's a missing word I'm not an expert in Greek but but Greek doesn't have a lot of transition words like and or of or but so if you read that in scripture those have been put into scripture to help things become a little more clear to us and I think there's a missing but in the in the passage the passage says you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the who is of the truth listens to my voice. It sounds to me based on what Jesus has already been talking about in the context of the passage it should say you say that I'm a king but for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. What is that purpose? To bear witness to the truth. Jesus has made it clear. He's not here to be king. But his purpose here is to bear witness to the truth. That's why he's here. So his purpose, yes, was to lay down his life as a ransom for many. His purpose was to serve and not to be served. But his purpose was also to bear witness to the truth. Pilate didn't believe that Jesus was guilty. He wanted to release Jesus, but the people... Put Pilate in a position where he had to do something. They said to him, "If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate couldn't release Jesus because he's a king. That would be defying Caesar. Jesus was neither a friend or foe of Rome." He was a king, but of a different, higher kingdom. We should also note how the Jews were willing to compromise in order to get Jesus crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus was the most important thing to them at this moment. Killing Jesus was the driving force behind their words and their actions. Pilate brought Jesus out and he says, Behold your king. And these people cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar. They had been accusing Jesus of blasphemy, but they had just committed it themselves. God himself was supposed to be Israel's king. They constantly turned away. They wanted a human king, but God himself was supposed to be Israel's king. God wanted it to be a theocracy where he ruled over them and they trusted him, where he was their God and they were his people. But the Israelites constantly saw what other nations had, and they wanted it. They wanted to be like them. They had a king, so God, give us a king. God wanted Israel to be different so that they would stand apart from the other nations, so that they would shine like a light in the darkness of all of the rest of the the nations. But they constantly wanted what the other nations had. It's important to know it, I think so easy for us to compromise on higher truth when we're immersed in a flood of lies all around us. Pilate did. He was immersed in the lies that all the chief priests and religious leaders were throwing his way about Jesus. He was completely surrounded by the lies about Jesus, and it's hard to be committed to the higher truth in that instance. But the truth is, if you have an innocent man, you don't execute him. If he's done nothing deserving of death, then why did he get death? That's what Pilate said, his own words. He didn't deserve to die. But the flood of lies was strong. The people who had been shouting the victory chant for Jesus on Palm Sunday were now shouting for his crucifixion. Lies can be overwhelming. And when there's a flood of lies... And it can be nearly impossible to resist being drawn in. Jesus was driven by a deeper sense of justice. He was here to end a different kind of a war. The war where we're God's enemies. But the entire world, the entire world has believed the lies of the devil. Rome had believed one set of lies. Israel had believed another. The devil's strategic like that. He's the father of lies. He's got lies for everyone, everywhere, every situation. Jesus was on the side of the truth. He was here, as he said, to bear witness to the truth, to be an ambassador for the truth. What truth was Jesus an ambassador of? It's what we would call the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel where where Jesus was sent into the world as God's one and only son to set them free from the bondage of sin and death, to draw us out of the death and into the life that God intended for us all along. That's the truth Jesus was sent for. But we would rather trust ourselves. We don't want someone else telling us how to live our lives. I want to decide for myself. I can see the the visible, tangible, real world around me, and I want to be able to make my decisions based on that, not on the intangible kingdom of God. But Jesus, when he's being interviewed by Pilate, could not compromise on the truth. Because the truth is who he was. It would have been tempting to compromise the truth if you're in that situation. But Jesus couldn't because it's who he was, it's his identity, and it's his purpose. Us, on the other hand, we have beliefs at every level of our lives that are misshapen by the lies of this world. It's a hard truth to hear, and it's also a hard truth to understand. But the truth is, all of us, myself included, at every level of our lives, have, have lies that we've believed, mistruths, at every level of our lives. And just when we think we've worked through the last lie that wreaked so much havoc in our lives, God peels back another layer to reveal the lie that that lie was built on. I think this is why it's so important for us to walk humbly with God, to walk in humility. This current cry for embracing your truth, my truth, we got to live into our own truth, all that is is pride. That's the pride of saying, This is my truth. This is what I believe. This is what's true about me. Whether you agree with it or not, this is just my truth. It's a way of looking at God and saying, I'm going to embrace my truth and your truth. Well, you can do whatever you want with it. It's a way of giving God the finger. But God is truth. His light is truth. His word is truth. His light illuminates what we thought to be true for the ego deception, ego-driven deception, ego deception that it is. And we're constantly faced with this choice. Are we going to trust God and go f- further towards His kingdom, or are we going to keep trusting ourselves and keep ourselves separated from the truth and the kingdom that God wants to establish in our lives? Are we going to let God remove this lie from our hearts, or are we going to keep embracing it and bolstering it up. But the deeper God goes, the deeper we allow God to go, the more we're going to look like Jesus. And the less we'll look like misshapen people, ad hoc versions of ourselves, people combined with our truth and what we've become under the influence of this world. So we have a lot of beliefs that our lives are built on, but and we hold to them tightly. We've embraced them, we've internalized them to a point where they've become our identity. Now it's not just something I think about, but it's actually who I am. And we're fighting for these versions of our truth. And we're refusing to compromise on our truth. Consequently, we've turned a lot of molehills into Mount Vesuvius's. And unfortunately, a lot of people are even willing to die for these lies. Willing to die for lies that are built on lie after lie after lie. We're fighting for a war because we want to be able to embrace our own understanding. But as Christ followers, we can't have embraced a misshapen identity about ourselves built on half-truths that have led us to a purpose that is out of alignment with who we're supposed to be in Jesus. We have to let God chip those away and remove them one by one. Luke chapter 22, we're just about done. Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Why was Jesus in anguish? For years, I thought the reason Jesus was in anguish is because he was agonizing about the cross and facing the cross and not wanting to go, with the cruci- go through with the crucifixion. And that's definitely a part of it. But the reason he's struggling between the two isn't because he's worried about the cross and, and dying this cruel death on the cross. It's because he was fighting between wanting to go through with his will and the Father's will. His flesh was telling him, you don't want to do this. And I don't blame him. Hey, you, you know what this is. You don't want to do it. This, you don't want to go through it. And his flesh was saying what his mind knew, which was that, that the, the sins of the entire human race throughout, throughout all human history were going to be placed on him on that cross. And he didn't want to do it. He was torn between what the Spirit wanted and what his flesh wanted. The Spirit was, was what was driving him towards the mission of God, driving him towards living out the, the call of God on his life, but the flesh was calling on him saying, hey, you don't want to do this. And he has this fight. God, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours be done. A second time he would go back and pray. Apparently, for a very long time, it's, in, it's encapsulated in one sentence, but these were split apart by hours, and Jesus went back and prayed, probably for another hour, God, take this cup from me. Not what I want, but what you want to be done. God, take this cup from me, but not, not what I want to do, but God, do what you want to do. And a third time, he went back and he prayed, prayed to the point of straining his physical body where he's sweating, he's dripping drops of blood through the pores on his face. God, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, your will be done. Not what I want, what you want. The same account in a different gospel, Matthew chapter 26. Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. He's over there in anguish, wrestling between going to the cross or doing what he wants, wrestling with taking on the sin of all humanity or going a different way, and they're sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away for a second time and prayed, if it's possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he came back again, found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. What would Jesus do in this moment? What was going to happen? Would Jesus give in to his flesh to avoid the crucifixion or would he follow through with the higher calling of the gospel? with the call of the Spirit on his life, leading him towards the cross. We all know, right? We know that he followed through. It's the only reason we have a cross up there. Just like he said he would do, he laid down his life, sacrificing himself on the cross as a peace offering and as an atonement offering. And his doing this would make peace, or at least offer peace, to all humanity who are at war with God. To make peace between God and the rest of us. As we're going through this series, I think we need to ask ourselves what we're committed to. Are we committed to our positions and what we think truth is? Are we committed to the truth that we've embraced about our lives or about how the world works? Will we continue to live hypocritical lives full of double standards, critiquing, judging, and condemning people around us for not living up to the standards that we fail to live up to ourselves? Or will we be committed to God's kingdom, God's truth, and God's call on our lives? where we lay down our lives, our rights, our positions, our possessions, and everything we cling tightly to so that those around us could be brought into the kingdom of God. The first one is a position of pride, which is what comes before a fall. We talked about that last week. The second is a position of humility, which is something God can use. If we walk humbly with God, he can use us to bring an end to our fighting and make peace with him and to use us then as ambassadors for reconciliation, going into the world at war with God and try to lead people who are at war with God out of their war, out of their fight, out of their angst against the creator of the universe and out of their rebellion, and God can use us to bring them into the kingdom of God and reconcile them to God himself, thus making peace. That's the higher calling that we have to be committed to. That's the kingdom of God way of thinking that we have to be committed to. One last thought on this color purple. Purple is the color of royalty. It's not just a mix of red and blue. It's actually a very important color in Scripture. Purple dye was hard to get, which made it extremely Valuable. Purple, the color purple, was an integral part of temple worship. They used it for curtains and carpets and the robes worn by the high priest. The robe that was put on Jesus after he had been beaten was purple. Purple, throughout all of scripture and even throughout human history, is a color of majesty. So to have a purple faith, it's not a compromise where we're trying to get people to compromise on their beliefs. It's actually embracing the kingdom of God, embracing the color of the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is royal. He's the Son of God. Purple is a perfect representation of Jesus because he's the Son of God. He's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and we as his children ought to live purple just like Jesus did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for the selfless sacrifice of your Son. Thank you for a Son who set an example for us in how to live our lives, how to lay our lives down and surrender, how to serve one another in love. I thank you for Jesus. Father, I pray, help us as your people, as your followers, as your children, to live lives committed to the higher calling of the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to live out our faith and put the, put the faith in the kingdom way of thinking first and foremost in our lives. We would allow you to sharpen any ideas we have, to cut out any lies that we've believed, and to embrace whatever truth you want us to embrace. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be pure in heart, that as you dig deeper and deeper into who we are, into the motives of what drives us in and out every single day, that we'd become more and more pure in our heart, driven, to connect with God deeper and deeper every single day. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be people committed to reconciling those who are at war with God. Help us to be the blessed peacemakers who are the children of God. Help us to be the peacemakers who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Help us to be those who are clothed in the clothing of Jesus Christ, clothed in the purple, majestic clothing of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, Father, that you use us this week to start making peace. We may never experience the peace in the country that that we long to experience between red and blue. But, Father, help us to find ways to bring peace between those who are at war with God and the kingdom of God. And I ask, Father, you give us those opportunities this week ahead, opportunities to build relationships, to love people unconditionally, to serve, to surrender our lives, and to live lives that light up the darkness, to live lives that shine so that people might be drawn by the kingdom of God in us into the kingdom of God itself. In Jesus' name, amen.